Have you ever heard about Fado? Or about a poison apple being used as a murder weapon? And no, we don't mean Snow White. Or maybe you want to discover Zyda, a long-lost relative of Queen Elizabeth II? Or perhaps some diet tips directly from the 11th century? Fancy a glass of wine and some history. Come and join us on Cork Out History wherever you listen to your podcasts. War. A mere continuation of policy by other means, according to Clausewitz. The most brutal, extreme, and unforgiving human experience, according to those who experience it. One of the oldest human activities. One that fascinates and intrigues. I haven't experienced war. I was lucky enough to be born in a country and in a time free of it. The people born in France in the 14th century did not have that luxury. They witnessed the beginning of a conflict that engulfed the whole country for over a century. And if that was not enough, they experienced the worst pandemic known to humanity. The Black Death, the plague. Something that killed 30 to 60% of the population, according to the various estimates. We are now entering that era, that dark time in human history where warfare and disease struck with immense force in the heart of France. Devastation by fire, devastation by bacteria. We are now entering the Hundred Years' War. Welcome to Lafayette, we are here, the French history podcast for the American public. I am your host, Emmanuel Dubois, and today we are talking about the Hundred Years' War, or La Guerre de Cent Ans in French. That enormous conflict, or series of conflicts actually, ravaged France from 1337 to 1453. The vast majority of English, or American history podcasts, or books, have an English point of view regarding this conflict. This is perfectly normal and understandable, but I will try to bring more of a French perspective, focusing more on the French side of things. Given the scope of the war and its complexity, I have decided to split this story into two episodes. This is part one, covering the initial invasion of France by England up until the reign of Charles V of France in 1364. As Americans, you might ask, why do I care about a war between France and England in the Middle Ages? Well, you should care. The continual strife between France and England is key to understanding the colonization of North America in the 16th century, and then why France took the American rebels' side in the War of Independence. The Hundred Years' War is one of the key parts of that narrative. I'm sure you will find it interesting and relevant. Plus, it is just a fascinating subject in and on itself. Keep in mind that many historical figures cited in this episode would deserve episodes in their own right. But I have to cut short 
to keep a coherent narrative. It does need some context, though. The rivalry between France and England is notorious. But where does it come from, exactly? Well, it can actually be dated precisely 1066. That's when Guillaume le Bâtard became Guillaume le Conquérant, or William the Conqueror. The Normans defeated the Anglo-Saxon army at the Battle of Hastings and became the rulers of England. The Duke of Normandy was now King of England. That created a very interesting situation. Being king, he was equal to the King of France. But he was also his vassal, his inferior, as Duke of Normandy. He had to pay homage to the French king for Normandy, as a part of the Kingdom of France. That feudal imbroglio won't get solved, and tensions between the two countries will rise during the following centuries. Now, I don't intend to talk about everything that happened between the two countries between the 11th and the 14th century, but I have to give you some context to understand and appreciate better the Hundred Years' War. The first big conflict erupted after the French king Louis VII repudiated his wife, Alianor d'Aquitaine, in 1152. She remarried with Henri Plantagenet, future king of England. In 1154, he became king of England, and he was also Duke of Normandy, Count of Anjou, and now ruled over Aquitaine, thanks to his wife. This immense territory was nicknamed the Plantagenet Empire. The King of England effectively ruled over way more French territory than the King of France. It should be noted that at this time, the kings of England are more French than English. More often than not, they don't even speak English, the language of the people. This will evolve over the next couple of centuries, thanks in part to the war that is our subject in this episode. The French crown won't rest idle, however. The King Philip II, nicknamed Philippe Auguste, retook most of the Plantagenet's possessions in France from Richard Coeur de Lyon, Richard de Lionheart, and Jean Santerre, or John Lackland, during the end of the 12th and the beginning of the 13th centuries. This culminated with the Battle of Bouvines in 1214, where Philippe Auguste defeated the combined English and Imperial armies from the Holy Roman Empire. The King of England had to accept defeat and to sign the Treaty of Chinon. Normandy, Anjou, Touraine, Bretagne, all those territories were retaken by the French king, reinforcing his own power as well as his kingdoms. In England, the backlash was immense and the king had to agree to sign the Magna Carta with the English barons in 1215 to keep his own crown. But that is another story. The situation remained relatively stable for the next century. The French king, Louis IX, reinforces the statu quo with the Treaty of Paris in 1259, giving back the territory of Guyenne on the French Atlantic coast to the king of England, but forcing its owner to pay homage to the King of France. This treaty will be the legal basis for the administration of Guyenne for the next 80 years. France 
was also enjoying what we call the Capetian miracle. Since 987, every French king of the Capetian dynasty had a male heir. No succession war or crisis. No need to assemble the barons to choose a king. It was a clear line of hereditary successions. When this comes to a halt, it presents the king of England with a unique opportunity to claim the French throne and to attack France. Let's dig into that a bit more. The origins of the war itself are both dynastic and economical. You see, in this time period, land equals power and wealth. Therefore, lords always wanted to conquer more territory, for both these reasons. Claiming a title or a throne was often a pretext to invade the said county or country. That is exactly what happened between France and England. Let me introduce you to the French and English royal family trees to get a better grip of what was going on at the beginning of the 14th century. The King of France was Philippe IV, the Fair, also nicknamed the Iron King. He had a strong authority, and his kingdom was thriving. His daughter, Isabel, married the future King of England, Edward, soon to be Edward II. Together, they had a son, also named Edward. That is our first piece on the chessboard. A King of England who happens to be also the grandson of the King of France. Philip IV died in 1314, but he had three sons, so no problem, right? Well, not so fast. His eldest son, Louis, becomes the King Louis X, but he was of fragile health and died in 1316. At the time of his death, he has a daughter, Jeanne d'Evreux, and his wife is pregnant. I should also mention that he had two wives. Jeanne's mother is Marguerite de Bourgogne, who was condemned for adultery and died in prison. His second wife was Clémence de Hongrie, so his brother Philip becomes regent. Five months after Louis' death, Clémence gives birth to a boy, Jean. The dynasty is saved. The Capetian miracle endures. For only four days, the poor little Jean dies and is known to posterity as Jean le Posthume or John the Posthumous. Philip, not missing a beat, bypasses Jeanne's claim to the throne and becomes Philip V of France. Most French noblemen support this decision because Jeanne is a minor and a girl. They fear that a foreign prince could marry her and effectively take control of the kingdom. But this creates a dangerous precedent. For the first time in 329 years, somebody else than the king's child inherits the throne. Fate will decide the rest. For those of you who want to know more about Jeanne or her mother, I encourage you to listen to the episodes regarding her on the podcast Past by Veronica Fortune. She did a great job on these historical figures. Philip V is now king of France, but not for very long. He dies in 1322, without a child. The crown now goes to the last male descendant of Philip IV, Charles, who is crowned as Charles IV. 
the Capetian miracle is definitely over, as he dies in 1328, also without an heir. The French barons now have a problem. Who inherits the French throne? Jeanne is the only direct descendant of the French king still alive, but she's a girl, and as I stated before, it plays against her claim. The French novels involve the old Frankish loi salique, excluding women from inheriting land. It's basically misogyny, disguised as law. They say that it also applies to the crown, and effectively disinheritor. But there is another male in direct lineage from Philip IV, Edward III of England. He became king the year before, after having evicted his own father from the throne with his mother, Isabel, and her lover, Roger Mortimer. Quite the family drama. Nevertheless, he is king and the grandson of Philip IV. But the French barons also invoked the loi salique, saying that the crown can only be transmitted through male lineage. They also decide that the king of France should be born in France. It is the first time that a monarch's place of birth actually matters and is considered an element of the beginning of French national identity. Isabelle is furious, but Edward respects the French lord's decision. They finally settle on Philip IV's nephew, also named Philip, and he becomes Philip VI in 1328. Edward III pays homage to him because he still has land in France, but the troubles are far from over, and the King of England is a patient man. The English kings had tried a couple times to make Guyenne an independent territory, to not be forced to pay homage to the kings of France. Each time, the French crown intervened, sizing territory and forcing the English to back down. Philip IV did it in 1292 and Charles IV in 1327. The kings of France and England agreed that France should renounce any future annexation of English-owned lands in France. But the king of England had to go to France to pay homage to his suzerain. After much convincing, Edward III finally does so. But the tension is palpable between the two kings. To make matters worse, Philip supports the Scots in their conflict against England, making Edward furious. More trouble erupt in Aquitaine and Guyenne, and the king of France sizes Guyenne and Ponthieu, that's in northern France, another English possession, and Edward answers in writing to Philip, whom he calls the, quote, so-called king of France. He claims to be king of France, and we are now in an open, full-scale conflict between the two kingdoms in 1337. Little did they know the scope it would take. Any bookmaker would have favored France. The country is richer and way more populous with about 15 million inhabitants against 4 million in England. It also has an old and powerful army. The French knights, descendant of the Frankish heritage, are dreaded 
by their enemies. But the English have a couple of advantages. Their administration is more efficient, more modern. And France is experiencing a terrible economic downturn because of the various conflicts in Flanders and of the famines that started in the 1330s. Quick note, famines and disease will be another key element of that period onward. The English king doesn't lose time and launches his first chevauché in 1339 in northern France. A chevauché, which means horse ride in French, is basically a quick military operation, during which a small army moves quickly into the countryside, devastating everything. It will become a trademark of English military operations in France during the whole war. The idea is to weaken the adversary's economy and to force him to fight under your own terms. But it is waged upon the population, rather than on the enemy's army. It's part of the reason why the English army is seen as cruel by the French. Sometimes to this day, Edward is cunning and smart. He uses economical warfare in a clever and relentless manner. He blocks wool exports to Flanders, to force the region to revolt against the French crown. Flanders was by far the most urbanized region of Europe, and its main trade was cloth. Without the English wool, the Flemish cannot earn their living. Edward also favored Robert d'Artois in his claim over the county of Artois, against the French king's authority. All this works beautifully, and the king of France has to divide his attention between various fronts, military and otherwise. Edward proclaims himself King of France in Gand in 1340, on French soil. He incorporates the Fleur de Lys on his royal coat of arms. There is no going back from this. During the first couple of years of the war, the two kingdoms trade blows, with France winning some engagements and England others. The first major engagement is a naval one, in the Northern Sea. It happened in 1340, and is known in French as the Bataille de l'Écluse, but in English as the Battle of Sluis. There, the French fleet is annihilated by the English one. Without going into details, suffice to say that the French tried to use a brute force tactic, and that the English outmaneuvered them completely. The casualties are absolutely horrible, with at least 15,000 Frenchmen dying in the engagement, and over 170 ships lost. That is far more than any land engagement during the war. It also cleared the way for future invasions of northern France by the English army. France will know many more defeats over the next 12 years. Both countries are also implicated in the War of the Breton Succession where Jean de Montfort and Charles de Blois will fight over the control of the Duchy of Brittany. Jean was supported by Edward and Charles by Philippe. Eventually, Jean will win the conflict in 1365, but I am getting ahead of myself. Things started to go really bad for the King of France in 1346. The English army had landed in Normandy for a new chevauché, and Philippe sent his army against it. They will eventually meet at crécy en pontieux about 100 kilometers south of Calais, on August 26. 
This battle deserves to be told, as it is a hallmark of English military capability as well as a turning point in the war. The French have an army of around 30,000 men. Some sources even numbered them at 50,000, but they are exhausted after a very long march. Nevertheless, the French mountain knights, the fin fleur of the French army, argue for an immediate attack. The English have taken a strong position, uphill, giving them a huge advantage. They also have one key element in their favor, the longbow. English longbowmen are unmatched when it comes to range and rate of fire. Put them in an advantageous position and they can destroy a much stronger force. This is exactly what awaits the French knights. The English number around 10,000 to 15,000 troops, but they will prove enough to stop their French counterparts. The French decide to use their main weapon, the cavalry charge. Indeed, properly used, it has demonstrated its efficiency times and times again. But here, the knights are charging uphill, facing a shower of deadly arrows. The English even have a few bombards, probably the first use of artillery in Western Europe. The French knights are decimated by the volleys and the ones that reach the English ranks get massacred. The English are not taking prisoners and the French send wave after wave of mountain knights and men-at-arms. Their bowmen and crossbowmen cannot get in range to offer proper support. The defeat is total, with over 1,500 French knights being killed and around 4,000 soldiers. It's a huge setback for the campaign and a blow to the prestige and power of the French crown. Philip VI, who survived the battle, despite having two horses killed from under him, had to be persuaded by the Count of Hainaut to leave the battlefield. Interesting fact, his ally, the King of Bohemia, Jean de Luxembourg, l'aveugle or the blind, fought in this battle. He had his horse tied to his quarriers to be led to the English lines to fight them. He was killed and there is now a cross of Bohemia on the battlefield of Crécy. You can go and see it. The most direct consequence of Crécy is that it allows Edouard to besiege Calais. The city will fall a year later and will prove a crucial bridgehead for future English invasions. But as I mentioned, the French power and prestige just took a very serious blow. At the same time, another belligerent was making its entry in the conflict. It arrived on Italian ships from the Orient, in the harbors of Marseille and Avignon in 1347. It unleashed over the whole country, without any care of flag, alliance or rank. It was a great equalizer and proved absolutely devastating. The plague had entered France. Between 1348 and 1360, France experienced disasters on and off the battlefields. The country was already on its knees because of the repeated famines and the war. 
The plague struck at the worst possible time. Two variants of the disease are present. The bubonic plague, spread by fleas on the rats, and the pulmonary plague, spread through direct contact. Both are lethal, but the pulmonary variant is even more so. Europe hadn't known something like this since the 6th century and the Justinian plague, but this new plague spreads even further and kills even more. The Black Death will take with it around half of Europe's population. Some French towns experience a mortality of 90% of their original population. Contemporary sources talk of an apocalypse, of God's wrath, of a, quote, number of victims so high that I'd never heard or read about something like this in past times, end quote, as written by Jean de Venette, a French chronicler of the time. Everything stops. The disease spreads so fast and so terribly that the country is paralyzed. Agricultural production collapses. Trade vanishes. Wine production dries up. France a kingdom that was the richest in Europe, that had a strong and uncontested monarchy in a feared army, was now struggling, defeated, and without any hope for salvation. People looked for a reason for this calamity. Of course, men think there must be a culprit, someone responsible for all this, maybe a group of people. And, as is usual in Europe, they accused the Jews. France experiences some of its worst programs in the 1340s and 50s. As an example, 2,000 Jews are killed in Strasbourg in 1349, but many thousands more will be killed by Christians over this period. Many will also flee or convert to Christianity. It's a tragedy and a shame on France's history. Sadly, it won't be the last time that French Jews are singled out as responsible for catastrophes they are not responsible for. This is but the first wave of the plague, but it's the most terrible. It strikes England too, and forces the hostilities to halt. The plague will come back in various waves after 1361, for a good century. A truce had been concluded between France and England in 1347, and was extended in 1351. When it expires, the war restarts, but on a much smaller scale than before. We now have a new cast of characters for the following part of our tale. The king, Philip VI, died in 1350, and his son, Jean, became King Jean II, nicknamed Le Bon, or The Good. On the English side, a young man was becoming a clever and dreaded military leader. Edward of Woodstock, Edward III's son, known to history as the Black Prince. These two will meet under the most extraordinary circumstances. The Black Prince starts a new chevauchée in 1355, in Languedoc, a most terrible one. In the superb chronicle, Grande Chronique de France, it is written, quote, Après qu'il eut couru le pays jusque près de Toulouse, et de là jusqu'à Narbonne, et brûlé, gâté, et pillé tout environ, se retourna à Bordeaux avec tout son butin et foison de prisonniers. End quote. Or in English, quote, After he traveled the country up to Toulouse, and from there to Narbonne, 
and burned, spoiled and lauted about, returned to Bordeaux with all his loot and plenty of prisoners. End quote. One of the theories on how Edward of Woodstock acquired his nickname is because of his brutality towards the French people during his campaigns. It is certainly a possibility, according to the French chronicles on his behavior, but it should be said that it was far from uncommon at the time. Jean II answers the call of his countrymen, asking for help against the Black Prince and leads his army against him in 1356. The French army outnumbers Edwards, so the prince retreats to an advantageous position near Poitiers. The French cavalry cannot be used on that terrain, so the knights fight on foot, hoping to avoid to repeat the error of Crécy. They are better armed, but less mobile than their English counterparts, and are mowed down by the English longbowmen. During the battle, two men fight desperately for their lives, the French King Jean and his son, Philippe le Hardy, Philippe the Bold in English. The king is made prisoner. It is a disaster for the French monarchy. Jean is sent to England, and France enters a new phase of the war, civil conflict. Up until then, the country and its nobles had stood relatively united against the English, but the repeated military disasters have weakened the French royalty. With the king in captivity, the Dauphin, Charles, has to assume power, and he faces a steep opposition in Paris, led by merchants like Étienne Marcel, backed up by Charles II of Navarre, nicknamed the Bad. This monarch will switch sides many times until his death in 1387, and he will contribute to a lot of the chaos of the period. The Dauphin also has to deal with a revolt of the peasants named Jacquerie, because their leader was named Jacques Bonhomme. Both revolts will end in blood, with the monarchy staying in control, but it is nevertheless tottering and announces further trouble for the French crown. Negotiations keep going between the two kingdoms. They will lead to the Treaty of Bretigny in 1360. Edward III of England keeps Aquitaine, Calais, Ponthieu, and the county of Guine. This represents about a third of the French kingdom. A ransom of 3 million écus, the French name for gold coins, is fixed to free King Jean. Edward III is reinforced in France, but he renounces the French crown. There is a slight hope for peace. And so is an interesting moment. Jean II is returned to France before the ransom is completely paid off. To ensure that he will keep his word regarding the treaty, Edward has hostages, like the king's brother and his son, Louis d'Anjou. In 1363, Louis escapes, and Jean is outraged. He feels compelled by honor to take his son's place, and he goes to England. The French nobles try to stop him, to no avail. France is now weakened, impoverished, and without a king. France was a complex kingdom, with counties and duchies all over the place. Just like kingdoms, these smaller entities were ruled by lords and could face successions 
crisis and war. While France was fighting England, two of its biggest duchies faced their own crisis, Bretagne or Brittany and Bourgogne or Burgundy. For the sake of understanding, I will use their English names here. The Duchy of Burgundy was a vassal state to the Kingdom of France, albeit a very powerful one. In 1361, it faces a crisis of succession with two main candidates, Charles the Bad of Navarre, yes, the same one, and Jean II of France. Jean, being the suzerain, chooses himself, and he gives it to his son Philip, the one who fought alongside him at Poitiers. That helped to neutralize Charles of Navarre and, for a time, to have Burgundy on the French crown side. I mentioned the conflict in Brittany earlier in this episode. Jean de Montfort, supported by the English king, is triumphant and takes charge of the duchy in 1365. The new king of France, Charles V, allows this, but the duke has to pay homage to him. Charles V proves to be an effectual and smart king. He solves many problems in France, especially the one of the compagnie, these military regiments used during the war that are now useless and have nothing else to do but pillaging the countryside. He uses them in a conflict for the throne of Castille and reinforces his influence by supporting Henri du Transtamar against his rival, Pierre le Cruel. Charles and Henri are victorious, and Castille becomes an ally of France. Charles also navigates a succession crisis in Flanders with an agile hand. He manages to have his brother, Philippe, Duke of Burgundy, marry Marguerite de Flandre in 1369. The other candidate for this marriage was Edward III's son, so this is a clear win for Charles at the time. This alliance between Flanders and Burgundy will eventually become a problem for France. But for now, it was a smart and effective move. Charles V, nicknamed the Wise, has in a few years stabilized the situation, let in tatters by his father. France still has a lot of territory under English rule, but at least there is no open war at the end of the 1360s. The Duchy of Brittany and Burgundy are stable. The Kingdom of Castille is now an ally. So, this is a good place to stop our first episode on the Hundred Years' War. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to listen to the conclusion of this epic conflict. Au revoir. You can find the Lafayette We Are Here podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, and other platforms, or on lafayettepodcast.com. If you wish to contact me, you can do so at emmanuel at lafayettepodcast.com or on Twitter at lafayettepod. The music for this podcast is the Marche pour la Cérémonie des Turcs, composed by Jean-Baptiste Lully, arranged and performed by Jérôme Arfouche.